Welcome back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 1, Meet the New Boss. Let's get this show back on the road. Officially kicking off season seven, we want to remind everybody that Rochelle's faith print is now available on our Etsy store. And in case you haven't seen it, it has Dean leaning on the Impala and like something akin to a halo and like some colors that some of you might recognize. So I just think that you should go all have a look so that you can wander at the amazingness that is this print and we're honestly we're just so happy and so proud to be adding this to our merch lineup i feel so wholesome and wonderful every time we launch new merch because it feels like so unique and bespoke i'm already looking at the empty space in my wall where i want to put it <laughs> i'm already thinking about that too i'm like where am i gonna put it <laughs> head over to our etsy store have a look let us know what you think if you are a patron you will get a discount code so now's a good time to become a patron just saying Another thing that we want to talk about before we launch into season seven is that we've been getting some really lovely reviews on Apple Podcasts, like, and it's honestly been so heartwarming to read them. So every week we're going to be thanking a couple of people who have left reviews for us. And this week we'd like to thank Joyless Janat and Jenna Arjana for their lovely and kind words. Thank you so much. They are so amazing to read whenever they pop up my inbox. I like my heart flutters in anticipation. If you're looking for a way to support us uh, and, and supporting us financially isn't really a possibility, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll take a few minutes of your time and, and we so appreciate it. Apple really cares about those and they really make a difference in like how many people see the show on like pages and stuff. The more reviews you have, the more positive reviews obviously you have, like the more the more Apple will push your podcast or our podcast in this case, like to new people. Thank you so much for helping us. And if you haven't yet, like we would definitely encourage you to, to take some time to do that for us if you can. Season, Season seven. seven. <laughs> How else can we start? <laughs> I guess you got to count me down so I can let everyone catch up with us. Three, two, one. Right where we left off. Cass, a.k.a. the new god, telling everyone to kneel before him, which Deed actually does. Best thing ever. So many things to talk about in my brain, not actual talk about. Cass is God now. He's going around doing all the things that he wished God had done and punishing the wicked and smiting the bad people and just generally being like a very vengeful God, uh, fulfilling his views, including a very apt moment where he talks about how he's totally cool with people being gay, which is great. Sam's having flashbacks of his time in the cage and even encounters Lucifer at the end, which is the whole, like, what the hell moment. And Dean is just like, I don't want any part of this. Everyone shut up. I'm going to fix my car. Everything's fine. I'm dealing with this. And Bobby's like, but, but, but Cass is killing people. We got to stop him. And then it turns out that they decide to do, to stop Cass by binding death, which is totally a smart idea. This is sarcasm. It's not a smart idea. And then Death tells them that there were things in Purgatory scarier than demons that are called Leviathans, which has my heart pounding a million miles a minute. 
and Cass has them inside of him, and they try to get rid of them, because death just makes another eclipse and lets them reopen the portal to purgatory, and he gets rid of all the souls. Cass is back, except the Leviathans are there, and they're scary. Time! <laughs> yeah. That's what this first episode is of Season 7. I've been set up in a way where I feel like Season 7, I went in being like, okay, I'm not excited. Season 6, I wasn't excited, and I ended up loving it. Season 7, I'm going in with very low expectations. I've heard the rumors that it's someone's less than favorite season. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Three or four key moments all around Cass have made me love this episode so much. Yeah, honestly, like I feel... I never had a problem with this episode. I do love it more now that we've looked at it. This episode was written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Phil Scritchia. It originally aired on September 23rd, 2011. And if anybody is keeping count, that is almost 12 years ago to this day, if you're listening to this on release day. If we can kind of like look at the long game of this episode, uh, it kicks off exactly, like you said, where season six left off, which is something that Supernatural does often in between seasons. It's a great way to do a cliffhanger. Like, you literally resume where you're hanging off the cliff. We also get to see Crowley, Death, Lucifer, and of course, Cass and Bobby in this episode. A-plus casting. We tend to forget this as a fandom, but, like, this is actually the first time that the boys have to fight God. Interestingly, uh, the conversation about, like, how to fight him and the game plan to fight him is surprisingly similar to the other instance of that happening. Huh. I was very surprised. But anyway, when I thought about it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. We get the iconic line from Cass, I am utterly indifferent to sexual orientation. Words to live by. And I guess now's a good time to sort of talk about the fact that Misha Collins was essentially playing three characters in this episode. The first one being God Stiel, which is the name that the fandom gave to Cass, like when he's God, basically. The second is Cass, uh, who we get to see for a few minutes, like when he steps out of the God Stiel persona. And then finally, we also have the Leviathans, which we see take over Cass's body or like his vessel right at the end of the episode. I'd argue we also get a very brief moment with them right before he blacks out and murders everybody in the political office there. And just like the twisted smile and like the giggling he gets with like the, that GoPro shaky cam, like steady face. Like, I think half my notes are just like the camera work cast this maniacal face and laughter. I I'm shaking. (laughs) Yeah. Misha did really well in this, in this episode, I find. Speaking of Leviathans, they are going to be the big bad this season. So not only do we meet our A plot in the first episode, but we also meet our B plot, which is the kind of like strange Sam and Lucifer relationship that is going to be developed. I'm pretty sure season six predictions had me saying there was going to be a weird like Lucifer living in Sam's head thing. What's really interesting about your predictions is that sometimes you predict something and I'm like, oh no, that's not going to happen until season 13, honey. I feel vindicated, but also just like, it's well done. I like the way they kind of leave it off this episode and really like, a, what was it in his head? It's fake, right? Mm-hmm. And the Leviathans, oh my god, this is, 
this is something I did not know a lot about, but another video game I play has kind of been dabbling with Leviathans and biblical imagery. So I've like been very vaguely like, like half reading about it. So I really want to like put some effort into like looking them up a little more now. I know nothing about the Leviathans. Well, there we go. We're both coming to Leviathans with two very different backgrounds. Well, on the topic of Leviathans, I want to note the language that Death uses to talk about them. Like he, he says, God was concerned they'd chomp the entire Petri dish, so he locked them away. Love it, but also the eating metaphors and Death. Uh, there's a very subtle callback to Death's line from season five, like, in the end, I'll reap him too, talking about God. And that's why Sam, Dean, and Bobby try to bind him to kill Cass, right? Like, because they, because Dean remembers that death said this thing back in season five again like it, that was one of those connections i made immediately and i was like yes this is good using past lore and like thinking outside the box mm, i love this i also love and like i just need to say because i have nowhere else to put it dean going out of his way to pick up some good food for death in all this like literally we're binding you we are your masters we are going to take control and ownership of you but I don't want to piss them off. And there are some really good onion rings. <laughs> <laughs> it was pickle chips, right? Pickle chips. Pickle chips. Sorry. Which, by the way, I hate pickle chips. Had no! I don't like pickles. Oh, I that's know, fine. weird. Yes. But I had some pickle chips the other day that no one else liked. I fucking love them. <laughs> you know what's really funny is that I had never... I've only had pickle chips once in my life. I didn't know what they were until, like, earlier this year, actually. For my friend's birthday, we went down to Vermont for, like the day and uh and we went to this pub and they were serving pickle chips and i was like oh well i mean it's fried pickles it can't be bad oh my god i loved it so much and now i'm like i need to make them at home because they're so good just in passing crowley was hiding from Cass, so i'm kind of wondering how that changes your prediction that crowley was in on the whole thing like if it does at all i could still argue that maybe crowley was aware of the plan not not aware but like realize what was happening and like purposely let it happen because he sort of saw this as the better of two outcomes like even the way he kind of plays with Cass in that moment where he's like oh you're just here to smite me like not even like cowering or, or de bargaining like he almost like he expected this a little bit I don't know. I think I'm overreaching in that prediction. That might be me trying to cover my own butt. I think so too, but that's okay. That's totally fine. <laughs> I agree. This was very much as Crowley getting the hell out of there and was equally as strict as Raphael was and is now just, and I kind of love just rolling with it. Just like, oh, you're the big bad. I can't stop you. So either I do what you say, boss, or I get de dead. This is a demon who used to have a tailor, you know, like before before Lucifer's demons ate him. So I guess I wanna, like, it's a pretty big fall from grace right now at this point for, for Crowley. But is it the only way to climb back up? Like, or down. So finally, this is not the last time that Dean will uh, say, Cass, hey, hey, with a cracking voice after Cass comes back to life. You know what? I don't think I needed that to be said because it seemed like something that was gonna happen more than once, but good to know. And I need to bring up one thing because I have become very transfixed on this every season. And that is the different changes to the title card or uh, title sequence. It's just the fact that we are in a season that is dealing with and from my own, I'm assuming kind of ending a story about Cass and his becoming God or thinking he's the new God. While having an intro that is very black ink on white paper 
like inkwells, pens, writers, authors, Chuck. I'm just saying Chuck comes back this season. I don't know how. I don't know where. We are getting at least a Chuck moment this season. I will say that we've talked about Black Goo before. Oh, we have. Okay. So maybe it's less ink and more goo. Okay. Something to think about. I'm okay with that. This week, our conversation is going to center around the theme of hubris, which, believe it or not, is a Greek word. (laughs) Uh, So the meaning of it today is like excessive pride or self-confidence, and it's often used in reference to Greek tragedy, which is a tradition of storytelling where like a character is going to show excessive pride or defiance towards the gods, like leading to their inevitable downfall. And I think inevitable is really important here. So one example here is Icarus, whose father made him a set of wings in order to escape, escape like the labyrinth. There's a lot more backstory to this, but like, I'm just trying to make it like very, very uh, short. So his father told him that he couldn't fly too close to the sea because that would mean the feathers would get wet and then he would fall into the water but also not too high so that the, the sun wouldn't burn the feathers. And Icarus was like, yeah, 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 no worries, no problem. But then once he started flying, he got really wrapped up with like the pride and the exhilaration of like being a human being who could fly. And he started flying closer and closer to the sun until the sun basically melted the wax that held the feathers together and he fell to his death in the sea. This is literally where the expression flying or girl bossing, depending on what generation you are, like (laughs) flying too close to the sun comes from. And this is how I'd like for us to think about hubris in our conversation, like as somebody who gets so wrapped up in their own power that they make self-destructive decisions, leading to their inevitable downfall. That is very, very apparent this week. I mean, this is a, a different retelling of the Icarus myth, this episode, and like this storyline for Cass, really. If we can start with Dean on the theme of hubris, I feel like this week for him, it's like he's more dealing with watching people he loves show hubris, and that's painful for him in all kinds of ways. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that he's spending a large part of the episode fixing the Impala, which is something that he did in 202 Everybody Loves a Clown, right after John dies. That was a John Sheban episode, by the way. So I just love that like we're still seeing his influence in characterizing Dean, even though we're like in season seven and he hasn't written episodes for like a good five seasons at this point. I also think that the language in both episodes is really interesting because in 202, Dean says, we've got nothing, Sam, nothing, okay? So you know the, th- the only thing I can do is I can work on the car. And in this episode, he says, they say in no book, if you stick your neck out, cast steps on it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fix this car because that's what I can do. I can work on her till she's mint. And I I just find that in both cases, like it's a recognition of his own powerlessness, which is like the opposite of hubris. We have Dean in a very different or new headspace of just getting by. Like right now he is focused on fixing baby and just sort of leaving everything else alone. We have discussed in the past on our show how the condition of baby is often symbolic of how Dean is feeling or how his emotions are being reflected. So broken, but trying to recover, 
seems like a pretty apt description of how Dean is feeling right now. Like you said, it, it seems to be very much Dean watching others uh, deal with their hubris. We see him watching Sam acting weird and likely not telling him the truth as he reveals. You know, because he's seeing Sam's freakouts and like panics and we know what it is, but he clearly doesn't. Uh, we're seeing him deal with cast literally trying to replace God and we will leave that for the cast section. Dean is really the only one today who's not thinking he is literally Atlas holding up the world on his own. I think that there is, though, one part of the episode where Dean shows hubris. And and to be fair, it's not just him. It's him, Sam, and Bobby together. And that's in the decision to bind death. That is the definition of hubris. Like, even Crowley is not on board. So the conversation goes, we need a spell to bind death. Bind, enslave death, you're having a laugh. Lucifer did it. That's Lucifer. A spell's a spell. You really believe you can handle that kind of horsepower? You're delusional. Luckily, like, it doesn't end badly for them, but it it really could have. Right, so it wasn't written in the tragic way, in the Greek tragedy kind of way. It, It was hubris to try to think that they could bind death. I don't think there is a world in which the character binds death and they lived happily ever after, could ever be written. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. So how about you get us started with Sam? Yeah, well, I mean, it's easy. Sam does what Sam does best. Uh, Something is wrong, and rather than speak his truth, he thinks he has to face it alone, and will just conquer whatever comes his way all by himself, because he's Sam. I mean, he's literally faced repeatedly by this nightmarish vision, or literal nightmares, of his time in the cage, ultimately ending with this very spooky encounter with potentially actually Lucifer or who knows what it is exactly yet. And up until this meeting, it seems like Sam really does believe he can just go with the flow and this will eventually pass, which again is a form of hubris of just thinking you can get through anything just by being yourself, which like, you know, good optimism, not the solution. I feel like we need to dive into this a little bit, like to really show how bad the situation really is for Sam, because he's hallucinating his time in the cage, right? Like that's what we're kind of understanding. And we do get confirmation that they're hallucinations because death says so, right? Like even if Lucifer is trying to make him believe that it's actually the other way around, that he's still in the cage and he's making him dream that he escaped. like, And I just felt like that was so reminiscent of the kind of horror elements that we saw in 5.11, Sam Interrupted, where Sam thinks that he's losing his mind. Like, I feel like we're pulling on those same themes of, like, loss of humanity and, like, a need to overly rely on survival instincts. And, and, I, and we know that these are some of Sam's, like, deeply held fears. Yeah, that's a great comparison to make. But, like, there is that kind of, like, pulling, like, this isn't just coming out of nowhere. We're, we've seen this exist before. Which I think just goes even deeper into the, is this Lucifer pulling strings and playing on his fears? Or is this Sam's own fears we already know about manifest? The second thing that I want to point us to is that Sam mentions that he's hallucinating meat hooks. And we've talked before about Sam's relationship with food and particularly with meat. And I think that this is like a really interesting lens to look at it through because we know that he might already have been a vegetarian before this. And we talked about how that might have been linked to like his disgust of having drank so much demon blood and even maybe like a need or a want to keep his body quote unquote pure. So again, like the meat hook is really touching on like a really strong and deeply held anxiety of Sam. 
it, like it feels like one of those things where it's like I could kind of be like, I don't know. But like why then specify meat hooks? Like why why not just hooks, chains? But like to specify the type of hook seems very intentional. And honestly, my whole point in bringing this up is to show like just how bad things are for Sam right now. And he doesn't ask for help. Like, or or at least he chooses not to when he realizes that Dean is also having a hard time. And I, I do want to link this to hubris because like what he's doing by not asking for help is essentially deciding that he can deal with this by himself. Like he doesn't need the help. He can just suck it up and deal with it. You know, like rub some dirt on it and man up. And again, I'm saying this because I think this is a way to think about how toxic masculinity requires men to show hubris sometimes. Like even if maybe they'd rather not, that maybe like in order to be a, a, a man, quote unquote, you need to be like way overconfident in your abilities, even for things that you just know you cannot do. Because we know that Sam was going to talk about it with with Bobby and and Dean, and he ends up not doing it in order not to burden his brother with it. Sam does at least try to go back to normal by siding with Bobby and choosing to try and deal with Godstiel, treating it like it were any other hunt, uh, which I think is just kind of an ironic twist on the fact that we are now seeing Sam dealing with his trauma, trying to deal with it and put it behind him, and in association with Hubris, by being a team player and supporting those around him, which is the thing that he needs from them rather than giving doing it the way around. Like he's literally trying to man up so much that he's like, I can be normal me. Let me help you defeat God versus the let me be vulnerable for a moment and say, I need help. Yeah, I, I really love that, actually. And obviously, I just want to mention, like, when we're saying man up here, we're saying it like in a way to acknowledge that it's a toxic masculine way of looking at things, not because we want sam to quote unquote man up like just just to be extra clear with everybody the thing is like i say those words I'm not even thinking about the consequence of them because they are so ingrained in that machismo way of toxic masculinity that just like have lingered for so long so Cass, holy crap <laughs> holy underlined everything about Cass this week screams hubris he replaced a stained glass Jesus with himself and is killing in the name of God slash himself and believes wholeheartedly he's doing the right thing. The hubris Cass has right now feels like he's trying to do way too much. Like he knows it's killing him. Like there's a, a moment when he realizes something's gone wrong, but is doing it anyways. It's as if Icarus knew the sun would melt his wings, but still wanted to die knowing he'd been the person to fly the closest to the sun ever. You know, Cass, Cass wants to do all the things he wishes God had done before him, and he wants to be a better God who is more active and less passive because he can do it better. And if trying to out-God God himself isn't the very most definitive version of hubris, I don't know what is. Okay, there's there's like so much there. So let's let's start with the beginning. I think that it was in 622 where you said that like Cass would never tell Dean to profess his love onto him. And Dean agrees with you, actually, because the first question that he asks Cass is like, who are you? Which is to say, like, I do not recognize you. Like you are somebody that I 
do not know. You are not the cast that I knew. And and we do get a peek at like the old cast near the end of the episode once he realizes like what the power of the souls and the Leviathan have been doing to him, right? It's clear. It's clean cut. It, it speaks to the theme we're trying to get to very clearly. Yeah, honestly, I think so too. And I think that it kind of like... I had a lot of questions actually about this conversation that we had in 622, I think, about whether Cass's hubris was a direct result of the power of the purgatory souls or if it's something that he had in him before. And I think that we landed on like this is something that he had in him before that was like exacerbated by the souls that he took in. And I think that the story of Icarus is like really important here because that's exactly the kind of story that we're being told about Cass. Like Cass takes in the souls or puts on his wings. After being repeatedly warned of the dangers, he says, yes, 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 don't worry. But the second that he's got the wings on and he starts flying, he immediately goes for the sun. I just think that it's really interesting also, like visually, the fact that he starts getting sores on his body. And I know that this is like the same sores that Nick got on his body in season five when his vessel couldn't handle Lucifer. But it's also really fitting for the Icarus story because it looks like the it looks like burn marks, right? It, like Cass is literally getting burnt by his hubris. Like we discussed in, in 622, I think we agree, yes, that there's a part of this existed in Cass before, this this want to see change. And I think that has to do again part with the him becoming more human in past seasons, is the realizing things were not perfect, that God is fallible, his way is not the perfect way and this is almost his rebellious way of being well if i were god i would do things this way there is a part of me that almost sees the first time he looks at himself in the mirror and sees his face after uh the man he gives sight to says what's wrong with, what's wrong with you and it's the realization of like oh i was wrong i want to do all these things but clearly i cannot Maybe there's more complexity to this. But then goes, nope, in for a penny, in for a pound. Let's go for the sun. I want to save the world. Exactly. At this point, like, I, I don't think that he's thinking straight anymore about, about anything that's happening. He's just like, he gets completely wrapped up in all that power and is just like, I, like, it, it sort of feels like he has no control over himself anymore, you know, like. Apparently the demons have been evading me for the last month are supposedly holed up here. If that vampire I dealt with last night was to be trusted. Fuck, am I that desperate I'm trusting vampires now? And of course, it lied. I mean, to be fair, so did I when I told him I'd spare him in exchange for the information. Yeah, nothing here. This place is empty except for the occasional rat, some flooding, and... Oh, that smell! Oh, the smell's enough to knock you out. Okay. I'm gonna try to check these rooms. Just get through this quickly. God, I hate these abandoned factories. What was this, a skunk factory? Okay. I'm out. I exit. Just need some fresh air. Oh, God, that's so much better, the air. That's when I noticed the mess that had followed me out of the building. My boots and the end of my jeans were drenched in blood. I looked back and realized the building was not flooded. The entire thing was filled with a solid pool of blood and very tiny demon chunks. 
Any relief I felt regarding the demons being gone was very quickly swallowed up by the fear of whatever the fuck did this. I would like to talk about one line that I've never really seen anyone talk about in this episode and what it means. When talking to death, Cass says, I'm cleaning up one mess after another. And it got me thinking about the expression like cleaning up messes and like where else we've heard it before. Now, at this point, I know that there are some people who know where I'm going and I can hear all of the people going like, oh, no. But yeah, the show often talks about Dean as cleaning up John's messes. And this is really significant, I think, because we've talked a lot in previous episodes and seasons about how Cass is learning how to be a human, but also how to be a man directly from Dean. I still personally think that it's the reason why he went back to heaven at the end of season five and why he made the decisions that he made in season six. Like, I think that he was trying to do what he thought Dean would do in his shoes. And what does Dean do when he sees messes that his father left? He cleans them up. And that's exactly what Cass is saying he's trying to do, clean up his father's messes. The number of times we've connected Cass to learning to be human from Dean breaks my heart because it makes me love them even more because it almost I don't want to say it excuses but it explains some of Cass's mannerisms or beliefs or the way he is acting absolutely it's not Dean's fault that Cass turns out one way or another but it's those little like links where it's like here is someone who has only been human for what a few months maybe a year now like he only really has one person he's really followed around to learn from I had never clocked that line before. And honestly, like paying close attention to it, like doing a close reading of it was really helpful because it was like, oh, wow, like this episode is actually really well thought out, like a lot more than I originally thought. And I'm I'm sort of hoping that this is a trend that we're going to see in season seven and that maybe I'll walk away from it as a whole being like, oh, you know, like I do love it a lot more than I did before. I doubt it but i don't know i'm still hopeful i'm still hopeful so i'll i'll, I'll just yes. yeah there you let go. the hope run through you <laughs> this week we have a message from ruby before we listen to it we want to remind you to send us a three minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com we also want to remind you that mary and i will be answering the question what is your favorite greek myth or our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk. Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hey, this is Ruby. Uh, I was just listening to episode 14, uh, Nightmare, and I found the critical discussion of, um, of guns and the gun cleaning that Dean was doing to be really interesting. Uh, but I also wanted to point out something I noticed from the character side, uh, which is that a lot of times in uh, situations like this, highly fraught situations, uh, Dean doesn't tend to be able to properly express his fear and his tenseness um, and his bad emotions, whether because he doesn't want to admit they're there, which makes the job harder, or because he doesn't want to admit they're there because it 
would uh, send Sammy into a spiral or Sammy's already in a spiral. Uh, and so instead of expressing those emotions, he uh, often in the show tends to go towards uh, coping mechanisms which allow him to control his environment and his future uh, more than uh, expressing emotions and getting rid of them. Uh, so often when he is frightened or tense or doesn't know how something is going to go, we won't see a conversation. What we will see is him uh, fixing up baby uh, the car or uh, inventorying and cleaning the weapons or uh, doing organizing research things like that, stuff that he can control. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, detail of Dean's character. And I think it's something that as we go through the series comes up more and more often until it's not enough. Uh, and then he falls back on being more like his father, being more gruff, being more we can't talk about anything except the job and unfortunately drinking. Uh, and I feel like it's something to watch out for. It's a way to show where Dean's head is without having to tell you, or without having him say it. You will also see this throughout the show with his sleeping position as well. Um, Cause in season one, uh, and I believe most of season two, he tends to sleep uh, on his stomach, hands under his pillow, ready to grab his knife or gun or whatever he's holding there. And then after certain events, when he has more PTSD, you will actually see his sleeping position reflect that. And I feel like that's something not a lot of people notice. So, yeah, <laughs> hopefully this is interesting and not just a bunch of ramble. Uh, I'm going to continue listening to the show and have a great day. Ruby, thank you so very much for this this voicemail. I think honestly, like you've explained it so incredibly well. Like I really don't have much to add about that. Like this is just such a great way of looking at like Dean. Like this is, I just find that this is a good way to evaluate his mood. Like it's like the Dean mood barometer or something like just... Just it, it is really good. I, I will bring the conversation back to critical here, like just because I find it so interesting because I went back and I looked and Nightmare in season one, episode 14 was written by Sarah Gamble and Rael Tucker. Right. So they had uh, Dean clean guns as a way to like regain control to to use your words ruby and now after that in 202 everybody loves a clown john sheban had him remaking basically the car and then now sarah gamble is also having him work on the car so i just find it really interesting and i think it's there's just something to be said about the fact that there are writers showrunners who are also adopting like the characterization of other writers, and in this case, like a past writer, because it's going to like, this is, I think, like a really great example of how the writer's room is like, 
in and of itself, like there's a conversation happening and not only within the writer's room, but also like over different seasons. So like people are going back, like there is a back and forth about like these characters characterization that I find truly fascinating. So thank you for pointing us to that, especially on this, on this episode. It's a good point. And as you bring up Ruby, that we see these moments with Dean where this is his way of handling things. You know, we, we see it as clear as day in this episode, rather than trying to deal with the, my boyfriend is literally God and trying to save the world by killing people. I'm just gonna step back one tree into the forest, fix my car. My car needs to be fixed that I can do that will get done. I am in control here and I am feeling fine. And then to your point, Mary, we talk about the barometer, the I'm very in control, I'm doing something that I can do that is controlling, to the I kind of give up mode that we see, which is just I'm going to pour a drink and watch some hentai. We get the whole spectrum of Dean this week. I know. So, Ruby, uh, thank you very much. I, I love sort of seeing this side of Dean and having it kind of, sort of knowing that it isn't a recent thing, that it's been as far back as season one that there's been this how Dean handles his emotions without handling his emotions. What is your reflection and call to action after seeing this episode? Well, I like to think I don't suffer from hubris much. Uh, I I know I do suffer from whatever Dean's got in that I can bury myself in uh, other busy work to avoid doing what must be done. Uh, You know, Dean needs to work on himself and instead he repairs baby, which is his own little self-care thing, but he's putting aside what he really needs to do. And I know I can distract myself with games or other projects or work on other things. So this is just a sort of call to action to remind myself that I need to prioritize the work that needs to be prioritized, especially when it's something that other people are relying on or depending on me for. I feel that. And Mary, do you have any call to action and reflection for this week? I know that I was really hard on Sam earlier for not asking for help when he clearly would have needed help, but I, I I do the same, honestly. So like my call to action is to both recognize and act on the moments where I do need help because not asking for help is like, uh, at least in part, hubris. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigoureux and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, Katira, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Ruby for its message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends. There is like a weird empathy for Hades because like, I think from my childhood, we all have the Hercules Hades in mind at some point. But to me, he is just the younger brother, the quiet one of the trio. You have Zeus, almighty king of the gods, Poseidon, ruler of the oceans, and like basically second in command. And then they were like, well, if I have the sky and I have the oceans, you get the earth and the under earth 
So while you're there, why don't you take care of the underworld, which will name after you? And they just like, okay, okay, fine, guys, I'll go. Um, and then when they realize, wait, all the jewels and pretty stuff is in the underworld, and Hades is like, oh, all of these amazing jewels and gold—that's all mine. Oh, okay, I'll be happy here. 